Welcome to Liquor and Liqueur Connoisseur, where I drink, discuss, and discover the world of distilled spirits. I'm your host, Matt Burchard. This is episode 31, and I'm drinking Southern Comfort. As a listener, you should expect that I'll be well-researched and educational, also entertaining and consistent in my reviews. So I chose Southern Comfort for this episode because I've got an unopened plastic bottle, a 1.75 milliliter, that was in my liquor cabinet. This came from my same trip to Las Vegas where I picked up the Kahlua that I featured in episode 30. I bought the big bottle because it's a deal compared to the prices I'd pay here in Oregon. Also in plastic, it would go in checked luggage without any risk of it breaking. I enjoy Southern Comfort, so I bought it in bulk. This is the original Southern Comfort. It comes in some variations now, but this plastic 1.75 milliliter bottle I have is 35% alcohol by volume, making it 70 proof. And depending on where you buy it, it will retail for around $22 to $32. You may think of Southern Comfort as a whiskey, and the makers like that you do, but it's technically a whiskey-based liqueur. So let's jump right into the tasting. I've got this unopened bottle here. So let's crack the seal. Yep, easy. For all my spirits that I taste on this show, I use a clean Glencairn. It's a whiskey nosing glass, tulip-shaped, so that you can see the spirit, swirl the spirit, get a good nosing of it, and be able to drink from it properly. So now the pour. I know I like it, so I gave myself a fair measure. In the glass, it's an amber, golden, caramel color, whiskey colored. You can see some of the alcohol tears as you swirl it. Now let's try it on the nose. <laughs> yeah, it smells like Southern Comfort. It's It's been a while since I've had the spirit, but I enjoy it, and it kind of takes me back. So let me give it another nosing and actually describe the the smell. It's sweet. You don't get any alcohol burn. It's 70 proof, so it's not very potent. There's some vanilla, a little bit of spice, but the sweetness is kind of hard to to pin. A lot of people will tell you it smells like peach. And if you have peach on the mind, you could probably pull some peach out of it. I would tend to think of it more of less peach and more nectarine. But I smell uh, some citrus as well. One of the fruits that I don't really get a strong smell for, but I've always known was one of the components, at least had been a component. Whether or not it's in the mix now is to be determined. But apricot. All right, let's go for a taste. Oh, yeah. Just neat, uh, straight out of the bottle. No ice or water or anything. It's very smooth, sweet on the tongue. It's a candied caramel flavor that I get. A fruitiness that's nondescript. Let's try it again. It is very light on the palate. It doesn't, it's not oily. It doesn't 
you know, dry the mouth out. The alcohol content is not pronounced at all. It feels very light. Even though 70 proof is, is not nothing, but uh, you definitely don't taste it. It's very easy drinking. Like any good liqueur, Southern Comfort is difficult to describe what it tastes like because it tastes like a Southern Comfort. That's probably the best definition. It's got a number of component parts, but the sum of those parts create the unique flavor of Southern Comfort. Let's jump into the history. Southern Comfort was invented by a bartender named Martin Wilkes Heron, or M.W. Heron, in 1874 in New Orleans. He was working at Macaulay's Tavern in the Lower Garden District. It's often stated that Macaulay's Tavern was in the French Quarter, but I'm in agreement with others who have concluded it was indeed closer to the Lower Garden District. But the French Quarter sounds much more romantic. Anyway, M.W. Heron likely created the drink because while New Orleans is ideally located in a port city with a lot of whiskey being shipped down the Mississippi River, the quality could vary quite a bit. And by quality variation, I mean there was probably a lot of harsh whiskey being served in the late 1800s. Southern Comfort themselves state as much on the back label, saying Heron took harsh whiskeys of the time and mixed them with his own blend of fruit and spices to create a whiskey that could be enjoyed comfortably. I think Heron was aiming to make whiskey palatable through flavoring and sweetening, improving it and aiming for consistency as well. Being located in the port city of New Orleans also meant that the fruits and spices would be readily available. So Southern Comfort began essentially as a pre-mixed cocktail, not unlike other spirits I've covered, notably Pim's Number no. 1 that I featured in episode 23 that also has a New Orleans connection, though Pim's was invented in London. In the late 1800s, though, Southern Comfort was not known as Southern Comfort. It was originally named Cuffs and Buttons by Heron, and there are two theories behind this name. The first, and most widely repeated, is that a competing cocktail or liqueur named Hats and Tails, referring to top hats and coattails, a classy drink, was available at the time. By all accounts, Heron wanted to emulate that and make his concoction just as classy, so Cuffs and Buttons played well on that theme. The second origin story for the name is that the shape of the ingredients that went into it resembled cuffs and buttons. Citrus swaths being a wide strip of citrus peel being the cuffs and cloves being the buttons. I'm in the Me Too camp though. I think Heron named it after a competitor, the Hats and Tails. And this is supported, I think, by the slogans and sayings used early on to promote the spirit. To this day, the bottle still sports the slogan, None genuine but mine, which is a clever way of stealing your competitor's thunder by claiming yours is indeed the original and everything else is a knockoff. Heron didn't stay in New Orleans, though. He moved up to Memphis, Tennessee in 1889 and patented Southern Comfort, bottling it and selling it under the cuffs and buttons name with the slogan, None genuine but mine. More references allude to Heron really wanting his drink to be viewed as classy, and another slogan used to sell it was, two per customer, no gentleman would ask for more. So presumably, if you're not a gentleman, you'll continue to imbibe, but the classy man would stop at two, I suppose. This could have had something to do with the proof of the early spirit, Southern Comfort. The original I'm drinking is 70 proof, but in the early days it was likely stronger, as whiskey was often higher proof as well. So the two per customer may have been a way to warn the customer of the potency masked by the fruits, sweetness, and spices. 
Cuffs and Buttons didn't last as a name, and while I can't determine when it became known as Southern Comfort, I did find one reference stating that Cuffs and Buttons was chosen as the drink for the New Orleans Cotton and Industrial Exposition, but Heron wanted to dress it up and renamed it Southern Comfort for this occasion. The Cotton Expo appears to have taken place in 1884 or 85, so by the time Heron was bottling it, it would have been under the Southern Comfort name. I'll say I unfortunately cannot confirm this though, after having gone down the rabbit hole of viewing online versions of catalogs from the Cotton Expo looking for a reference to the drink. It may just be hearsay, but it was the only lead I found as to why the name was changed and when. What may be more legend is that in 1904, Southern Comfort apparently won a gold medal at the World's Fair in St. Louis. So says Wikipedia. Though I can't find corroborating reference to it, however, it is well known and reported that Jack Daniels won a gold medal for the best whiskey in the world at the same World's Fair. The medal they won purportedly is on display at Visitor's Center, so maybe the gold medal is more legend than canon for Southern Comfort. What we do know to be fact is that Prohibition shut Southern Comfort down, but they did get back on their feet in the late 1930s. Jump ahead to the end of the decade in 1939, and Southern Comfort is put on the proverbial map with the introduction of the Scarlet O'Hara cocktail, so named for the character in the movie Gone with the Wind. This cocktail is simply Southern Comfort, cranberry juice, and lime juice. It was featured in advertising, and one vintage ad I saw noted about Southern Comfort, no sugar is needed with America's most versatile drink. Post-prohibition until 2010, the label featured the image of an antebellum mansion, the Woodland Plantation, which was a rendition of the artwork titled A Home on the Mississippi. While a beautiful home, it was dropped from the label in 2010 under Brown Foreman's ownership. This was a change for the better in my opinion, separating the brand from the negative connotations related to slavery and such estates. In the late 1960s, the American singer-songwriter Janis Joplin had an affinity for the brand and was often photographed with a bottle. This was not a paid endorsement deal, though she just simply liked Southern Comfort. However, Southern Comfort did thank Janis with a fur coat. In 1979, Brown Foreman, one of the largest U.S. conglomerates in the spirits industry and owners of such brands as Jack Daniels, acquired the brand and the company. Up until this point, Southern Comfort had been an independent firm. At some point prior to their purchase, the whiskey and Southern Comfort had been replaced by a neutral grain spirit, and Brown Foreman kept it this way. Starting in 2011, Brown Foreman did some of the first brand extensions for Southern Comfort, releasing a lime and a cherry-flavored version, among others. In 2016, the Sazerac Company purchased Southern Comfort from Brown Foreman, along with Tuwaka, that I covered way back in Episode 9, as part of a $543.5 million deal. Sazerac is a New Orleans-based spirits company on the rise. Their hometown is also the birthplace of Southern Comfort. The brand has been in good hands since their acquisition. In the last few years that Brown Foreman owns Southern Comfort, worldwide sales had declined from roughly 2.2 million 9-liter equivalent cases in 2009 to about 1.6 million in 2015. One of the first things Sazerac did was put whiskey back in Southern Comfort. A lot of press was given to this change, with even the New York Times covering it. Sazerac owns several brands and distilleries, and as such has access to many North American whiskeys, 
Brown Foreman, of course, does too, but they didn't seem to care to return to the original intention of Southern Comfort with a whiskey base. But starting in 2017, whiskey became the spirit base again. Under Sazerac's ownership, they have extended the brand, playing to the whiskey drinker with an 80 and 100 proof version meant to align with other common pure whiskeys on the market. Southern Comfort has been well-loved over its 140 years, but it's also had its original classy image tarnished. Often referred to as SoCo, even by the company, it's commonly lumped into a category of spirit that's right for the college crowd. It's easy drinking to excess. It's inexpensive, and that's another reason I think it ended up with the connotation of SoCo. The shorthand for the drink does really work well and suits it. It's SoCo. It's comfortable. Whatever's comfortable is one of the brand motivations behind Southern Comfort. Since 2017, Sazerac has been working to breathe new life back into the brand, and getting back to a whiskey base certainly helps. Articles from 2017 have the CEO of Sazerac quoted as saying the brand was in danger of losing a lot of relevance in the mind of consumers. My bet is that Sazerac bought Southern Comfort because they saw the profit potential in building the brand back up. Plus, they probably got a decent deal due to the sliding sales under Brown Foreman's watch. Add to this some clever marketing. Sazerac had been playing to the whiskey drinker and has gone as far as saying, For us, whiskey is the root of the brand and we're going to embrace that and not play in that liqueur space. If we're right between Jack Daniels and Jim Beam on the shelf, that will be fine with us. This positioning actually continues a trend that dates back to post-prohibition, when it would have been considered a compound or fake whiskey. In marketing, Southern Comfort was always alluded to be a whiskey, but it never has been. So yes, Southern Comfort is technically a liqueur, but Sazerac and everybody else really want you to think of SoCo as a whiskey. The current label avoids liqueur, instead describing it as spirit whiskey with natural flavors and caramel color. So then how do they make it and what's actually in it? The original recipe may be lost to history and the current incarnation is of course a trade secret. However, there is an early recipe reference that states M.W. Heron would use an inch of vanilla bean, about a quarter of a lemon, half of a cinnamon stick, four cloves, a few cherries, and an orange bitter too. He would let this soak for days, and right when he was ready to finish, he would add his sweetener. He liked to use honey. My assumption is this was the proportions for bottling, but it may have been for a barrel's worth. I'm not sure. The internet often tells you that Southern Comfort is peach-flavored. No mention of peach in the original recipe. If after Prohibition it had peach, or it contains it today, there's no telling. In the tasting, if you're thinking of peach, you can probably pick up some peach. I, however, have always assumed it to be apricot-flavored whiskey, based upon what I was either told or read at some point, maybe during bartending school some 20-plus years ago. An article back in 2013 supports the apricot flavor theory from a man named Chuck Cowdery, who should know he worked for a marketing agency employed by Brown Foreman when they bought Southern Comfort in 1979. Chuck worked on the brand for at least six years and was responsible for a number of recipe books and other marketing as Brown Foreman folded Southern Comfort into their company. And he said that the fruit concentrate was mostly apricot based. 
So that's probably as close as we'll get to an official account of what's in Southern Comfort, at least back when Brown Foreman purchased it in 1979. Total aside, but you know what else is primarily apricot-based? McDonald's sweet and sour sauce. I love that stuff. Sazerac reformulated in 2017 when they added whiskey back in. It obviously has sugar in it, but it's hard to say what else. You taste the fruitiness, some spices, probably some vanilla. It has caramel color added, says so on the front label. But for specifics, I don't know, and I'm okay with that. Cocktails and consumption. What do you do with America's most versatile drink, as they said in the late 1930s? Well, I'll tell you, Southern Comfort is great on its own, or on the rocks. SoCo substitutes nicely in most whiskey cocktails for some added fruitiness and sweetness. The aforementioned Scarlet O'Hara would likely get you a blank stare for most bartenders these days. But the cocktail I learned to make with SoCo as the key ingredient was the Alabama Slammer. It's Southern Comfort, Amaretto, Slow Gin, and Orange Juice. So in summary, what do I think of Southern Comfort? It should be no secret that I really enjoy it. It is a fine flavored whiskey-based liqueur, and I'm happy with it. So that's going to do it for this episode of Liquor and Liqueur Connoisseur. I'm your host, Matt Burchard. Please subscribe and share. Do tell your friends. Show notes are on liquorandliqueurconnoisseur.com. You can also find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Ask Alexa to play Liquor in the Core Connoisseur podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The show is also on social media. Facebook and Instagram are where I'm most active. And if there's a liquor or liqueur you would like me to feature, or if you have any questions, reach out and get in touch. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>